When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited to introduce to you my good friend and special guest this week, Boris Kojo. Boris, welcome to A Current Life. Thank you, Jimmy. How are you? I'm fine, my friend. It's been a while, but I am honored to uh, have you join us and talk about the journey of life and uh, everything you've been through. And uh, We're good friends, and I'm excited that you were able to make the time in your busy schedule. So am I. Thank you so much for having me on it. What I'd like to do is give you a proper introduction for our listeners. The show goes into over 180 countries, and uh, uh, I'd like to give you a proper introduction. Boris Kojo is an award-winning actor and has starred in some hugely successful movies, such as Spike Lee's Love and Basketball, Tyler Perry's Medea's Family Reunion, Sony Scream Gems, Resident Evil, Afterlife, and Resident Evil, Retribution. He's also experienced major success on the small screen with award-winning shows such as the hit TV series Soul Food, and also starred on Broadway as Brick and Cat on a Hot Ten Roof. Boris and his brother Patrick have launched a high-quality custom clothing company called World of Alpha. And in 2008, Boris and his beautiful wife, Nicole Ari Parker, established the Sophie's Voice Foundation in honor of their daughter, Sophie, who was diagnosed with spina bifida at birth. Uh, Boris, uh, uh, I'd like to start off with you and, and talk a lot about your growing up years in Germany and Austria and just to ask you what you were like as a young kid. <laughs> but it's, it's funny when you, you, um, when you listen to this because um, it, it doesn't seem real. Uh, the things that I've accomplished so far certainly uh, weren't on the horizon. I grew up uh, just a regular kid playing sports. Um, um, my mother is a psychologist. My father was a doctor. From and uh, we grew up in in, uh, in a small town south of Germany. My grandparents' house pretty much spent all day, uh, every day, playing tennis and practicing. But I never really expected uh, I'm an actor or a model. Or... So it it and that, that's how life goes, you know. In the later years, teenager, when I started having back problems, I sort of for the first time I, I had to consider you know doing something different and playing. Right. Well, you know. Um... First of all, uh, we did have a, I'm sure I was nowhere as highly rated as you in tennis, but we've talked about this before. My mother passed away when I was very young, when I was five uh, on Christmas. And and when my dad remarried later on, she taught me how to play tennis. And so I spent a lot of my youth you know, playing tennis and baseball, and that's kind of how I grew up. And that's kind of what I expected to do for the rest of my life. And, of course, things don't necessarily work out the way you plan. 
I had a love for movies, and and it's funny that's kind of where our 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 paths cross. But I'm curious, um, when you were younger, your parents separated. How did that event kind of affect your life, and did that, did that also kind of cause you to spend more time playing tennis and doing things to to kind of get through all that? You know what? That's that's interesting because I never really considered that factor in me playing a lot. It's definitely possible. Um, it was a huge event because um, you know I was. I was without father, brother, and I sort of took over as uh, the, the, the guardian angel uh, for my little brother. So if anything, I think our relationship uh, became closer and closer as my father left. But it, it was tough. Um, um, one parent, one parent household. Uh, my grandmother was around, uh, which was great. She's 95 now, by the way. Her birthday didn't Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. And... Um, and I just sort of took over and, and uh, tried to be a role model for my little brother. Um, tried to be there for my mother and everybody else around, which, is, uh, which was definitely self-imposed. Uh, so I'm not blaming anybody for that. But um, it's, a, it's, it's a lot for a kid and it's a lot for a teenager. Uh, and I had some issues because uh, I felt that pressure. And, mm-hmm. and I, had, I had my own you know, anger issue towards my dad that I never really got to... Um, uh, really go through uh, consciously. Uh, no, I had semi breakdown when I was six. Right. So, um, you know, I had to sort of, I had to be able to digest that and, and go through it at my own pace and let it all out, which I did at that point. And it freed me. It was a huge release and a relief. And, um, I was able to. I communicate better with my father after that, sort of slowly build the relationship strong now. Um, but those years definitely were, had a, had a huge impression on, on my life. Uh, and it also sort of, I guess, in, influenced me in a way uh, to know that I wanted to be a father, number one. And number two, that I wanted to do it differently than uh, how my father had done it. Uplift them, empower them, give confidence, love. Um, that's a huge motivating factor in my life now. That everything I do is for my family. Every single sure. thing, every single decision I make, uh, I have my family in mind. Because I believe that in the end, when I'm 95 and I look back uh, on my life, the most important legacy that I could possibly imagine leaving is my children. Uh, all the movies I've done and businesses I've started uh, pale in comparison to the importance of having children that you've raised, molded. So, so I guess I have to thank my dad <laughs> in a way because uh, the experience that I went through as a child definitely made me, uh, at least partially, um, uh, the father and the husband that I am. So I imagine in, in all that time that you were going through your growing up years, and uh, especially when you were 16 and facing some challenges of your own, you know, in the past we've had uh, in our guests a few times we've mentioned the famous phrase that Orson Welles made, which was that uh, adversity makes you stronger if it doesn't kill you. <laughs> and, and it sounds to me, uh, certainly in my life and in your life, we've both confronted you know, a lot of adverse situations. I know you're going through it with your wife right now and, 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 you know, uh, 
it sounds to me also that that it, it takes a a certain kind of understanding of of who you are to be able to manage through that. And it sounds to me like you did that when you were growing up and playing tennis and kind of expanding um, your life, you know, and, and with all the changes going on. Yeah, you know, at the time you you you're not aware that that's what you're doing. You're just trying to make it to the next day, I guess. Uh, especially you know in those teenage years. When everything's when everything seems so heavy and <laughs> and uh, and serious, um, which is funny uh, because you look back at it and you scratch your head and you go and you laugh, you know. Um, but uh, it's important, you know. It is important because you're sort of paving your way and you're 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 making a mark. And uh, I think every sort of um, decade has its purpose. Um, the teenage years are obviously hugely important because you're you're just trying to figure out what the world is and then in your twenties you're trying to figure out who you are. Um which was great for me. I got to, you know, go to the States for the first time and study at, at a at VCU in Richmond, Virginia, which was uh, an amazing experience for me because I got to, you know, uh meet all these people in a new environment and new mentalities and culture and uh, get to play tennis on, the, on, on on that university level with other players from different countries. And uh, how did that actually come about? Because I was going to ask you, uh, just for our listeners, you you got a scholarship, didn't you, for tennis to uh, VCU? Yes, yes. When when I was when I was um, eighteen, I uh, had a severe injury uh, in my lower back, uh, and the doctors pretty much said that my career was over, which was a huge sort of blow uh, because my life thus far had been about playing tennis and I knew I was going to be you know playing the US Open and Wimbledon and all those tournaments and and make my living traveling playing tennis um and it wasn't uh, to be and so that blow uh, it, it took me about I don't know 6 months 8 months to get over that because uh, it sort of somebody just pulled the rug uh, from under your feet and uh it was my mother's idea actually to go and and accept one of the scholarships offered to me here in the States to get away from home uh, and, uh, you know, meet new people and realize that uh, life was about more than just playing tennis, which I did, and, and I and I accepted a scholarship to VCU. Um, the coach, Paul Costin, is an amazing man who um, was there to not only coach me in tennis, but really coach me uh, on how to be a, a man, how to be a person. Um, and uh, the lessons that, that he's taught me are with me to this day, and I've applied them over and over again. Um, so that was a huge, huge uh, experience for me, those three and a half years at VCU. And uh, and it sort of paved the way for me to, to go on this journey in my 20s and figure out you know, what I wanted and, and who I was. And, and I got a chance to move to New York and uh, and, and start modeling, which was a nice sort of accident that happened. Uh, I How did that it. come about? You signed with Ford Modeling Agency and had an unbelievable uh, successful modeling career uh, and became really one of the most re- recognizable faces among male models. Uh, how did that just come about? Was that um, obviously you hadn't planned it that way. So No, I hadn't. I, I, was, I was in New York to visit my sister who lived there at the time. And this lady approached me and asked me what agency I was with. And I had no idea what she was talking about, and um, she happened to be Rita Valentine, who was the the head of uh, the Ford uh, 
uh, men's board. And she was from Switzerland, so we got along really well, really, uh, pretty much immediately. And um, so I sort of dove in and, and uh, had a chance to work with some amazing people like Bruce Weber and, and, and Herb Brits and photographers like that. And, and, you know, do the runway shows in Paris and Milan. And, and again, I got to travel and see the world and meet a lot of different people, which has sort of been my my life in a way. You know, I always get to meet really interesting people and <clears throat> and be exposed to new things. And um, and I loved it. You know, I loved, I loved the traveling aspect. I loved that I could make some money and 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 visit these these places that I probably would have never been able to go. Um, so I, I really one thing that sort of I guess stands out is that I've always been open-minded, wide-eyed, and um, ready to to take advantage of opportunities. And uh, I don't know uh, why that is, but um, I've always felt that that every day was sort of a gift and and um so I always I'm always open I'm always uh, ready to to embrace uh, new experiences and see different things and meet different people and and uh and I think that's one thing that that I'm really uh conscious about uh, passing on to my kids that sort of uh, awareness that there's life out there that that we don't know and 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 that there's people out there and cultures out there that we haven't met and seen, and to be open and em- embraceive of those things uh, when they sort of cross your path. Because if you don't, I think life can pass you by, and 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 when you're 95 <laughs> and you look back on your life, uh, one thing my grandmother used to tell me is, uh, you know, don't ever um, have to regret not having Absolutely. done something. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's great. To, you know, it's great. Uh, something we need to learn in our culture in America is to learn the wisdom when you get to the age of 95 or the age of 80 or whatever, because in a lot of civilizations, they worship the elderly and they build shrines to them. And we haven't quite figured out what to do because we're such we're such driven by the physicality of who we are. And I've always uh, followed what I call the Yaki way of knowledge. And the, the, the fourth great power, the fourth great, or what they say, you know, they, they call it fear, clarity, power, and old age. And you never conquer old age, but you, mm-hmm. you, your journey is about knowledge. And your story is a lot about the knowledge of, of, of life and the journey, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. Because certainly you've been in some incredibly competitive environments uh you know tennis is one of the most competitive sports because you're on your own you're out there and 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 you really have to be prepared in great shape and you know it comes down to maybe a point you know to make the difference and obviously modeling i mean you know i can't even imagine what that's like and 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 then you go on a film and you go on the tv and 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 broadway and and then of course the the challenges of life of raising children and and marriage and everything else like that I, i have a lot of admiration for you and I've always felt kind of a, a kindred spirit because you chase knowledge and, and you're not afraid to, to chase that, and I admire that in you. Same here. <clears throat> so let me ask, how did you transition from modeling to the film business? And and actually, your one of your first movies was Spike Lee's feature film, Love and Basketball, which is one of my favorite films. Uh, yeah, tell was, me a little um, bit about he, that. He produced that movie, and it was, it was directed by... Um, Gina Bythewood, um, was amazing. Um, 
it wasn't it wasn't a transition, Jimmy, at all, actually, because um, I was modeling, living in New York, and traveling traveling the world, and and uh, I I still had a German accent, um, so I I really, I mean, I was able to speak English, obviously, because I'd studied, but uh, but I wasn't um, I wasn't perfect, and uh, I wanted to see if I could lose my accent. Um, so I started taking acting lessons to see if I could accomplish that. Not not necessarily with the goal of acting, but just um, to see if I could just um, you know uh, if I could if I could be able to speak English correctly. And uh, so I did, and I rolled in an acting class in New York with uh, Susan Batson, who's amazing. Sure. And uh, I started working at it, um, and uh, I started working at it, and I worked at it every day, and I did my exercises. And- Certain breathing exercises you do, and 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 speech exercises, listening to tapes, and mimicking uh, language patterns on TV. Like I watched Oprah, and I watched a lot of MTV, and <laughs> so that's that's what I did to see if I could lose my accent, and that's uh, what got me involved in acting, and that's what got me passionate about it. And uh, at a certain point, uh, I felt confident uh, to go out to Los Angeles and um, and try my luck, and and if if uh how how faith sometimes uh, uh plays a huge huge part i was in la shooting a uh, uh a fashion campaign with bruce weber in, in malibu and um the ford agency called me and said that they had gotten a call uh for a uh, a movie and there was this role and they were looking for this, this guy um so i went to paramount uh just completely cold and and without any I haven't read the script or anything, and I and I went in to read for this part that uh, happened to be this, uh, you know, two-episode uh, arc on this new show called Soul Food. Um, and I got the part, and a week later I was in Toronto shooting Soul Food, which was my first experience. Well, what year was that, and how old were you at that time? I was, um, I was in 2000. Uh, that was 20. Was it was twenty five, twenty six. Wow! And so, you uh, go on so I was up in Toronto for how shooting long for food, you? and and uh, uh, <laughs> again, uh, I guess it was fate because I I I got to play opposite this this beautiful young actress named Nicole Ari Parker, who was an was an extremely talented uh, actress, uh, and she sort of started showing me the ropes. We we became fast friends, and uh, and. Paramount and Showtime, they loved the chemistry that we had playing uh, playing lovers, uh, so they extended my two episodes, and out of two episodes became four seasons. Wow. And, uh, well, you went on to win three NAACP awards, and it yeah, became it was, one of the most successful African-American drama series in TV it was, history. Yeah, it was the most successful American drama uh, series on TV uh, so far, and um, very proud of being a part of it because the writing was exceptional. Um, uh, Felicia Henderson was the showrunner. She wrote uh, uh, the show as well. Very talented uh, uh, lady, and and it, and I'm very grateful because that was my apprenticeship, so to speak. That was my chance and opportunity to learn the craft and to figure out how, you know, TV shows are shot and movies are shot, and and that led me to, you know, Love and Basketball and Brown Sugar and, and all these other movies that I did. Um, TV shows I did after that. Let me ask um, you, so when did you know that Nicole was the one? 
Um, I think I knew, you know, I don't know, unconsciously I knew uh, when I met her because her energy was extremely strong and, and she was so loving, has an open heart and just an amazing person. Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of aspects that played into us not pursuing each other immediately because we both loved our jobs. and We knew how much responsibility was to be up there with the cast in Toronto and shooting the show and making sure everything came out great. So, and we were aware of these cliches, you know, of, of falling in love with your co-star. And, and, and so we sort of took it really slow, and um, <clears throat> which is great because we got to know each other really well. And only after maybe two years did we finally decide to, to get together. And um, and one thing I did, and, and uh, which I look back to now, and I'm proud I did it, was um, I took a step back and I decided to... to figure out um, my my baggage, um, because I certainly had baggage, and which I carried on into relationships, and, and, and I'm definitely responsible for for a couple of the breakups that happened uh, with me and, and various girlfriends before, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't take those mistakes and I carried them on into my relationship with Nicole, because, uh, you know, I knew that she was very special. I didn't want to muck it up. So um, how, did, how did you go about doing that? Because I'm sure that's something that most people aren't wise enough to to do before they get in relationships. I know I've I've, I've I mean, it was, learned in that department. It was so. something that we we sort of both decided because we both had been in in in, in uh, long term relationships before, and we didn't want to uh, be each other's rebound. You know, we wanted to uh, honor uh, our chance, so to speak, and, and, and so we both stepped back and said, let's let's figure out what we contributed to the downfall of our past relationships and take responsibility and, and, and face those issues and make sure they don't reoccur. And uh, so I went to therapy and, um, and found out how, you know, my relationship with my father, with my mother, my childhood, how all these uh, experiences sort of played into uh, me in 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 relationships, uh, because there's always stuff that you carry on into into a relationship, and um, I wanted to familiarize myself, if you will, with those things, and, and make sure that they didn't stand in the way of me having a great uh, having a great relationship with somebody I really truly care for. Now, were you with her when you were doing that, and she was doing it? Or it was in the you... beginning when we decided to not take it all the way there, but to take a step back and say, okay, let's figure out what we did wrong mm-hmm. in our past relationship and make sure we don't do the, you know, we don't make the same mistakes again. Um, and it was very important because we got to the table, you know, clean, if you will, refreshed and healthy and, and, uh, and excited and ready to, you know, uh, enter this sort of new chapter together, which we did. And, um, and it was a great decision. It was tough, but it was a great decision. I think that that we made. Do you do you think so? Obviously, um, if there's a takeaway from that, because you know our listeners uh, learn a lot. I think from this show, it's inspiring. People try to you know figure out ways that they can reach you know whatever their success is or whatever they term their success is. And it is all about the journey, and it's the ups and downs, which we all go through. I didn't want this show to be about the success. I wanted it to be about the journey. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think was your biggest takeaway that you brought into the relationship that maybe had you not done the therapy, you would not have learned? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure there were a few. I think I think uh, the, probably the biggest thing was um, that I used to um, compensate for my own shortcomings uh, or insecurities by saving the other person or by, by believing or thinking I could save the other person. What right. that means is I, I was always there to, um, I was always meeting women who were... Who you wanted to fix? Exactly, who I wanted yeah. to fix and wanted to save. And so I, I sort of <clears throat> fell in love uh, with with potentials, if you will. And so I learned that I didn't have to sort of seek validation through fixing or saving somebody else, but I could, number one, just be who I was, um, and I didn't have to compensate for anything. I could just be honest with who I was to whoever I was interested in. And then number two, I wanted to make sure that the person in front of me was the person that I wanted to be with and not their potential. Uh, and, and I think that was huge because, and it happens to a lot of people. It happens to a lot of people that that we see certain aspects we like in somebody, and we we think that if we amplify those, if we empower and and sort of increase those aspects, that we could eventually fall in love, or um, or the person could be perfect for us, which is complete completely ridiculous because it never happens. Um, you always have to fall in love or be in love with the person that's standing right in front of you at that exact moment and not somebody that they might become in two or ten years. Yeah, that's and, insightful. Um, yeah. So I definitely, I definitely think that that is a huge lesson that I learned um, through, you know, looking back at my life and my relationships. Well, I'll tell you, we're, um, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk briefly about what it's like to be people's 50 most beautiful uh, people uh, or persons. <laughs> and... And then I really want to dedicate this show and 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 spend a lot of time talking about uh, what you've done in terms of setting up the foundation and uh, uh, in, in honor of your daughter uh, who was born with spina bifida. And I want to talk a lot about uh, about that and 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 get people to understand what you're doing and the work that's being done with Sophie's Voice Foundation. And and we'll be back in a minute. We're here with my good friend, Boris Kojo. You're listening to A Current Life brought to you by Smartwater and Ohio Midwestern College. And um, we'll be back in a minute. Please stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. 
The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my special guest and good friend, Boris Kojo. Boris, uh, what I'd like to do is... For our listeners, ask you what it's like to be picked by People Magazine as one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. <laughs> ah, that's hilarious. I was I was on the long list, not the short list. <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. Um, you know, I always uh, I, I already forgot about it. it. It was I don't know. It was a couple of years ago, and um, you get a phone call and. Your publicist tells you that you've been picked and that you're going to be in the magazine, and then you hang up and then you forget about it. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, only remind it because let people you about keep it, reminding you about it. It's, oh. it's hilarious. I mean, I can't take any credit for that at all. I mean, I don't know. I've got to thank my dad, my mom, for for the genetics uh, that they passed down to me, um, uh, and that the perception uh, led to this. Tremendous honor, I guess. Uh, but you know, I like to focus on things that I can that I can influence and that I can sure. that I can you know control and contribute to and and through hard work and and whatnot. And and this is this is just one of those perks, I guess. Uh, I'm flattered. I'm, I'm I'm honored. And and let's move on. <laughs> well, I'll tell our listeners. Uh, I I know you, and uh, I consider you a friend, a, a good friend, and and quite frankly. Uh, you're very down to earth. Uh, ever since the first time we met, uh, you know, it was very evident to me that you're just down to earth, and and you know, I, I can see how these things, you know, you can take them and then just move on. And um, I don't think a lot of people can do that, but but you obviously are a seeker of knowledge and and how you can influence things that you learn about. So let's talk about probably the most important. I'm sure is the most important thing in your life, which is family, mm-hmm. and in particular your work around your daughter, Sophie. Uh, would you give us kind of in the listeners a little bit of a kind of a history of that and how that came about and, 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 and what you've been through and, and um, the work you're doing? Well, um, Nicole and I got together in 2003, and um, we wanted to have a family, and uh, we wanted to get married, and so we... Um, Got married in 2005, in March of 2005. Uh, no, actually in May of 2005. Our daughter was born in, in March of 2005. And it was a pretty, you know, regular pregnancy. Um, uh, not any major issues. Uh, and um, 
when she was born, we were told that she had spina bifida. They had found a, a, a small sort of dimple-like growth on the base of her spine. And after MRIs and tests, they uh, told us that she had spina bifida. And uh, when you first hear something like that, you're world sort of crumbles because, you know, we were this, this hot Hollywood couple and, you know, and, and we had this hot, sexy wedding and we had this little, cute little baby and it was all, you know, picture perfect and and it wasn't. And uh, so it, it was, your heart breaks immediately and, and you fall into this huge hole and uh, once you realize this is reality and, and we had to... We had to go into overdrive right away because we had to figure out what we were dealing with. We had no idea what this was. Um, the doctors don't give you any answers because they're hindered by their, you know, by liability issues. So they don't want to give you any false hopes. So they tell you that she's never, never going to walk and she's she's going to die probably and all these things. Uh, you know, you you're these two young parents who are just. It's like a nightmare. It's, it's a trance you go into. It's this weird sort of um, um, you know, parallel universe that opens up that you don't really want to be a part of. And, and I spend the next couple of weeks, uh, 20 hours a day, I spend on the computer and on the telephone trying to figure out what we were dealing with and educating myself about the facts and if there were any facts. And, and uh, I spoke to experts all across the world to see um, what we could do and can you as, explain as we were, a little bit about what causes it and, well, it's, and, it's, and what it is exactly? Spina bifida is a neural tube defect. Uh, it's a birth defect that um, that affects eight eight babies a day here in the United States. Um, wow. It's uh, it, when the spine develops. There's a membrane that closes around it. The spina bifida babies, that that membrane stays open, so then the, the neural tubes, the nerve endings, protrude outwards. And when they do, they cause a lot of damage because they're they're being um, they're being injured. Uh, so depending on how far down the injury is on the spine, it affects all the extremities below. So it's the bladder, bowels, uh, leg function, you know, muscle tone. Uh, 80% of spina bifida kids are in wheelchairs um, or wear leg braces. Um, uh, most of them don't have functioning bladders. Um, some of them are affected by it in ways that that um, affects their brain and, and, and spinal fluid leakage. They have to wear shunts in their brain to release pressure. It's, um, it's the most... Um, it's 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 the most complex birth defect there is that's um pedal with with life, meaning you can live with it, it is manageable, but the effects it has on on obviously a child and the family are absolutely terrifying at times. Um, and you don't really know how and what's affected and right right away. I mean, I assume that, that as the child's developing, uh, you become more and more aware of, of the different effects that the that it's having on the child. Yeah, and you're dealing with the you're dealing with the 
with the nervous system, so you never know what's going to happen. Um, right. When Sophie was three months old, they performed surgery on her spine to detether her spine from a fatty substance that the spine was stuck in, so the spine could develop and grow. Um, that was the first of uh, surgery that she had, and and we spent we ended up spending eight weeks in the hospital because she got infected, and we had to stay there. And they pumped her full of antibiotics, and and uh, it was it was it was the most traumatic experience of my life, um, fighting with doctors and threatening doctors, and and trying to figure out what was the right way to to, to treat her. Um, it, it's it's something that I don't wish on anybody. Um, we got over that, uh, and when she was two years old, she got a massive kidney infection, and we found out that she had, on top of it, she had both-sided reflux, which is when the flaps at the at the base of your urethers that connect the kidneys to the bladder don't work, so the urine travels back up into the kidneys, which is very right. dangerous, obviously. Right. Uh, we figured out that she had a neurogenic bladder, which is a high-pressure, small bladder, that she can't control. So the urine would just assemble in her, in her bladder and uh, the pressure would get too high and the urine would go back up there because she couldn't, she couldn't operate her sphincter, so she couldn't release And I urine. assume that causes infections and things like that and pain that? and things like that. What's that? Does that cause pain and, and infections and things like that as a result? Oh, it, it's, it causes continuing to continuing UTIs, urine, urinary tract infections, uh, which lead to kidney infections, which is hugely dangerous for for, young, for anybody, um, um, and even more for a young child. So um, the doctor said we had to perform more surgery to enlarge her bladder to reduce the pressure. Um, the only other option that we had at that point was to catheterize her every three hours continuously, 24 hours a day, to make sure that the pressure in her bladder uh, didn't go up. Um, so we looked at each other and we knew what to do. We had to uh, commit to catheterizing her because I did not want to subject her to another surgery or to another, you know, whole whole set of surgeries. So, um, you know, our life had already been, uh, to that point when she was two years old, had already been all about her and figuring out what to do for her. And, and uh, we were so happy that she could walk that she had leg function. So now we were focused on how to deal with her, her neurogenic bladder and her bowels because uh, she wasn't in control of that. Um, so we catheterized her every day, all day, every three hours. Um, it's the most traumatic thing you have to do to a young baby when you first start doing it until she got used to it, obviously. Um, you feel like a child molester um, when this little child is fighting you. Um, you have to stick a tube in her and... and Obviously, you're introducing bacteria, which is a huge danger because that leads sure. to urinary tract infections. So they suggested antibiotics. I was completely against that because you know what antibiotics do to a little child's body, especially when they're when they're administered every single day of their life. Yeah, they can't fight what happens from that. So it's, well, the uh, immune system just collapses yeah. after a while, and we knew that. So um, we found different ways of dealing with that. Uh, we gave her. Um, these corn uh, um, silk drops in the tea and in juice that protected her, which is a um, homeopathic uh, means uh, to an end. So we found lots of different ways. Uh, uh, we mixed traditional Western medicine with, with uh, Eastern medicine, with homeop 
tomography with AccuLaser, which is something I got from Germany, which stimulates the immune system. Um, so we, we sort of, through the years, we found our own way of dealing with that and because we wanted to give Sophie and Sophie's body a chance to develop and grow and heal itself rather than um, meddling with it too much. Uh, we wanted to give her a chance, and, and we did, and, and I'm so glad we did because through nutrition and, and uh, various methods of, of dealing with her uh, uh, bladder, we found a way to, uh, to give her a, a great base and to let her body um, develop. And her bladder now is the regular size of a seven-year-old girl. Wow. Um, the reflux went away, thank God. So no more urine traveling up into the kidneys. Um, so the body has, to an extent, healed itself because we gave it a chance. And uh, we're still catheterizing her, and now she's learned how to do it herself since she was four years old. So she's very independent that way. She... She has learned how to formulate language around her issue. Um, so when she talks to her friend, you know, she, she has a special bladder, and uh, she's completely comfortable with who she is, and she's confident. And, and, and that was my goal, because when you have a child with a birth defect like that, um, there, is, there is a social and psychological effects that it has on the child and, and, and their environment. So we wanted to make sure that she, she has the confidence and the language uh, to talk about it and and not to feel like an outcast. Um, is she seven now? She Sophie turned seven in March. Yeah, she's she's doing great. She's uh, you know she skis. She she does gymnastics. She goes to dance class at the Debbie Allen Dance Academy and dances five hours a week. Those are all things that the doctors, when she was born, told us she would never do. And uh, so we're very proud. Uh, By the way, I'll tell Debbie and Norm I said hello. <laughs> Very fond of them. I, I, you know, this is an amazing story because what you went through and what you did, I'm sure most people, I mean, there's so many people, as you said, you know, just, just alone every day, how many kids are born with this and, and all the other illnesses that the children, you know, go through and, and around the world. I mean, uh, and you really took, I think, a lot of your experience and Nicole's experience and really you know, own this and, and did a lot of work and formed your own foundation you established uh, with Emory University in Atlanta in 2011, which was the Center for Spina Bifida Research, Prevention, and Policy. Um, you know, tell us about that because it's really exciting what you're doing, and I imagine you've just really affected so many people in positive ways that have gone through this. Well, the foundation came about because um – we found out that uh, there was a large community out there of people who were experiencing the same thing. And we found a lot of solace. We found a lot of help and comfort from people who had gone through the same thing. So we wanted to return the favor and reach out because we do have a voice and, and we are in the public eye. We wanted to use that <clears throat> to affect change and to affect them, um, um, to give people comfort and, 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 and to lend a hand and to open up the conversation worldwide about this birth defect and how um, people can better manage uh, their child's situation. And um, so we founded Sophie's Voice Foundation uh, four years ago. And the, the response was overwhelming. From all over the world came emails and letters and, and from people and families that were going through the same thing and, and how, how huge the need was for some kind of... Um, some kind of uh, a place where they could go to exchange information, to give advice, to receive advice, and, and just, just have somebody to talk to. And uh, that's how it started. 
and um, we we met uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Okula, who is now our CEO, who was um, basically a counselor at the Children's uh, Hospital of Atlanta, who helped us when we first came there uh, with Sophie, and he is now our CEO of our foundation. He does a tremendous job, and through him, we've forged this, this partnership with Emory in Atlanta and the School of uh, um, the Rolling School of Health. And we are now in the planning phases of establishing the first of its kind spina bifida center in Atlanta. It'll be housed at the at the campus of Emory University, and we're very proud of it because uh, um, we want all the, the 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 brains, so to speak, the scientists from all over the world who are working on birth defects, especially spina bifida. Um, um, we want them to have a home, uh, and the CDC is our our. Um, consulting uh, partner in this venture, and they released a statement saying that with us, Sophie's Voice Foundation and Emory, there is a chance of completely eradicating all preventable spina bifida globally in the next 10 years. So So how how does folic acid play a role in this? Folic acid is a vitamin B that um, will prevent 70% 70% of all spina bifida cases, which is a huge number. Wow. So one of our missions is to educate women of all um, um, of childbearing age, so basically girls from the age 14 and up, uh, on the importance of taking folic acid right now, not just when you uh, think you're expecting, not just when you're trying to have a baby, but take it all the time. It should be part of your daily routine to take four MCGs of, of, of folic acid because it protects you and your child. It, it makes your hair grow and your nails grow, so it's, it's a really good vitamin to, to, to be on. And the problem is that doctors don't tell you to take folic acid because uh, most of the time it is in prenatal vitamins. But the problem is that it's not, that the, the amount is not enough and that the absorbent in every person is different. So you could take four MCGs a day, but only absorb a quarter of it. Um, so it's very important that women realize how important it is to take folic acid. Um, they should take it three months before uh, conception and two months after, because the crucial time for the development of the spine is the first 21 days of, 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 of pregnancy. Um, so that's been sort of our, our mission to, to educate women and to... Uh, to, to, to support research and to make sure that within 10 years we can truly uh, eradicate 70% of spinal bifida worldwide, which we're very proud of, and we've taken on that goal. Can you we need tell all the our, our we can listeners get, uh, about the website? People want to find out more information, to they can go to Sophie's Voice Foundation. So we can continue to stress that. And, um, and we'll, we, we communicate with people on our site. We have a great network now uh, worldwide. And so if you need help, information, uh, if you want to contribute something, um, donate, uh, you're welcome to go to sophiesvoicefoundation.org. Uh, and um, it's funny because, uh, Jimmy, you know, my, my business ventures that, uh, that Nicole and I have, have started, um, they were all um, a function of us trying to create uh, revenue streams for the foundation. Right. So... Everything we do on a business end uh, was informed by our mission uh, to to help um, you know families that are affected by this birth defect, and that's how World of Alpha came about. Um, uh, a concept that my brother. Brought
brought to me, which I'm hugely proud of. Um, and that's how Save You Do came about, that my, my wife launched earlier this year. Uh, and both companies are doing really well. And, and, uh, and again, they're socially conscious companies that serve a purpose, which is to create the revenue streams for the foundation. Now, you know, if you think about how many kids are born with this a day, and, and, and not just the children, but also the families of children who get involved in the care, I mean, you're, you're, I assume this has affected over a period of time millions of, of people around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, there's tons out there that we don't even know about because it's tough to, to get the exact numbers. All we know is that even in the third world countries, um, and partially Africa and, and uh, as well as you know, China, mainland China, for instance, the, the numbers are, are huge. And it, it's a direct effect of, uh, of our, our nutrition. Because in America as well, the numbers have gone up because we don't eat uh, healthy anymore. We don't eat those dark leafy greens anymore uh, where folic acid was in. And so that's why the numbers have gone up. We've sent uh, um, a couple of volunteers over to Africa, more specifically Ghana, where my father's from, to, to collect data on that. And the numbers are staggering. And that's, that's also uh, one aspect that motivates us to, to, to get this going. Well, you know, I mean, we're facing in, around the world, but particularly in this country, you know, the obesity issue. And I was watching a show yesterday with, with former President Clinton talking about this, the, the sugary drinks and what Bloomberg is doing, trying to cut back on that in New York. And, yeah. and you know, you, you, you listen to this, and obviously nutrition may be at the heart of so many of the things that we're all facing right now. So, number one, you have our support on this show. Uh, we will get involved. We will make a donation. We will get the word out there. We're... We're running your website and on 1,800 screens and 130 malls, and we'll do so throughout the week and 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 support this in any way. I, I'm curious because uh, we're coming to about the last few minutes of the show. You know, you and Nicole really were able uh, through all this to have a very strong relationship and 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 work through what would have probably been a very difficult thing for most relationships. I'm curious, what was the glue that really held things together for you? Um, you know what? Eighty um, percent of marriages uh, with a special needs child uh, end up in divorce. Um, it's a it's a very sort of sobering number, and um, we went through it. Um, we we went through our own personal war. Um, there's no other way to put it. Um, the stress, the amount of stress that uh, something like this causes on you individually and you as a couple, as a married couple. And remember, we just had, we had just gotten married, so we were just a, a newly, we were newlyweds, and we had expected, you know, a honeymoon and the lovey-doveyness of the of first being married to your best friend and love of your life, and and that all was taken away immediately. Uh, we we knew um, about Sophie before we got married, and so the excitement of, <laughs> of 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 our life together was sort of got a really huge blow immediately. And uh, the first three four years were just darkness. It was just it was just every day was another battle and and against the unknown and and. It's tough because you you blame yourself, uh, which is ridiculous. You blame each other. You 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 need an outlet, so your partner becomes the outlet. So you 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 dump all this stuff on your partner, and which is not fair. And 
we, we did go to therapy to, to see what we could do uh, for each other because everything starts with us. But it was just very, very difficult. And I got to give credit to her because I'm married to a superwoman who, um, you know, stuck by me and who who carried the load with me and, and uh, lifted me up. And I try to lift her up. And and it's, it's funny because when we talk about it now and... and Obviously, we're still dealing with it, but uh, because it's a never-ending sort of story. But uh, we've come out on top. We have stuck by each other, and and we've we've um, we've supported each other. And I think one very important thing that I could probably uh, give pass on to other people is we gave each other the chance, the opportunity to grieve and to to be angry and, and to do it at our own pace and to do it individually if we needed to and do it together if we needed to. And we were completely open to to completely honoring those those sentiments, those feelings that we had and, and not judge each other or blame each other or, 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 or you know, um, well, it, be, be, be mad at each, each other for it. Well, it's incredibly inspiring what you and Nicole have done. Uh, you know, our time's up. I hope you'll come back at a later date. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you're a dear friend, Boris Kojo, and you've shared your journey with us and the listeners, and we, we wish you much success in your future. And, and I want to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life and the Voice of America Variety Channel. It's your host, Jimmy Gould, asking you to be with us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope inspiration, success, and Boris, to you, much love and continued success. And Thank you so much to me. I God's appreciate will. it. All my best. I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.